Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. The 1960s was a decade that would prove itself to be one of the most culturally significant decades of all time. And now, looking back, it's probably quite safe to say that it was an important 10 years from a worldwide political point of view, with events that would shape the world almost to its very core. One year particularly important to the story of the 60s was 1961. It was a year that would divide countries. Events would take place that would lay the foundations for potential global nuclear destruction and see the first man escape the confines of the Earth's atmosphere. The so-called permissive society would poke its head further over the parapet, the space race would pick up speed and the Cold War would begin to freeze to a previously unimaginable temperature. And amongst all of this, the soundtrack of 1961 would be presented to us by Elvis Presley, Shirley Bassey and Helen Shapiro. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the hits and the headlines of I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Some people are on the fence, they think it's all over. It is now, it's good. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And so, one of the most dramatic years of the 20th century began relatively quietly, as on the 1st of January the British farthing, a coin worth a quarter of a penny, and which had been around since the 13th century, ceased to be legal tender. But the calm wasn't to last too long. 
following day, Monday the 2nd, saw Fidel Castro, Cuba's Prime Minister, demand that the United States Embassy in Havana reduce its staff from 87 to no more than 11 by the Wednesday two days later. In response, President Eisenhower ended diplomatic relations with Cuba the very next day, and US Marines guarding the embassy lowered the American flag for the last time for what would be more than half a century. At the end of January, after careful trials, the contraceptive pill Conovid went on sale in the UK. But it wouldn't be till the end of the year before Health Minister Enoch Powell announced that it would be available on the National Health Service. But he didn't give any guidelines as to whom the pill should be given. He stated, It's not for me to indicate to doctors when they should decide for medical reasons to prescribe for their patients. However, some GPs are in a dilemma over whether they could prescribe the pill, as it soon became commonly known, for social as well as medical reasons. Several companies went flat out to manufacture the product in Britain, which initially cost the NHS just over one shilling a pill, 17 shillings a month. And some politicians were anxious that the drug could be a huge financial burden on the Treasury, which at the time was spending £90 million a year on drugs provided by the health service. And even with the announcement that the pill would be available on the NHS, the Family Planning Association, which ran clinics all over the country, had not yet decided whether or not to give the go-ahead to its physicians to issue the pill to married women. What with Lady Chatley last year, and now the pill... Many believe that this truly was the start of the permissive society. Also in January, the one millionth Morris Minor rolled off the production line. In Kenya, the lioness Elsa, heroine of Joy Adamson's book Born Free, died. John F. Kennedy was sworn in as the 35th President of the United States. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, Ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. And towards the end of January, events above the earth would start to take over the front pages around the world as the space race continued at an incredible rate. Down, da-da, 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 da
On the 31st of January, a rocket was launched from Cape Canaveral by the United States. The rocket travelled at 5,000 miles per hour at a height of 155 miles above the Earth. On board, not the first man or woman in space, but a chimpanzee named Ham. Ham was chosen by the Americans in preference to dogs which were favoured by the Russians, as chimpanzees were more similar to humans. Ham had been trained to pull levers on board in response to flashing lights and was one of six specially trained astrochimps. Although Ham arrived back on Earth alive and well, things didn't quite go to plan. The rocket blasted off at just before 5pm and almost immediately there was a problem. The flight path was a degree higher than it should have been and was steadily rising. Computers back at Mission Control registered a drop in the supply of oxygen and the mission was swiftly aborted. But due to the higher than planned flight angle, the rocket had already reached 157 miles above the Earth, 40 miles higher than anticipated. Ham, however, was safe throughout the journey in a spacesuit. He travelled the 155 miles in 16 and a half minutes, and for six and a half of these he experienced weightlessness. Ham had to wait three and a half hours before being rescued, as he had overshot his landing in the Atlantic off the Florida coast. Rescue helicopters arrived to find the capsule on its side and starting to sink. The capsule had landed with such a force that the heat shield had punched two holes into its side. Ham would spend the next 17 years in retirement at the National Zoo in Washington before moving to a chimpanzee colony in North Carolina and passing away at the age of 25 in 1983. The defects that were exposed during this flight were soon rectified, and a second Mercury capsule manned by another chimpanzee, Enos, would successfully orbit the Earth twice before returning safely later in 1961. Just over two months after Ham's return to Earth, on April 12th, a momentous day in history would see the first human to be sent into space. I'm a traveling man, made a lot of stops all over the world, and in every port I own the heart of at least one lovely girl. Quietly, the Russians, realizing that the Americans were edging up rapidly on them in the space race, launched Vostok 1 just after 6 a.m. Moscow time. If you're ever in a the Vostok program was being tested as direct competition to the Americans' Mercury craft. The Vostok 1 was designed to carry a single cosmonaut. Yuri Gagarin, aged 27, was selected as the prime pilot of the capsule, with German Titov and Grigory Nelyubov as backups. These assignments were formally made on April 8, four days before the mission, but Gagarin had been a favourite amongst the cosmonaut candidates for at least several months. During pre-launch preparations, the decision was made to paint CCCP on Gagarin's helmet in large red letters. This was in case after landing, if Gagarin was spotted by local police or security personnel, they would realise that he wasn't a foreign agent parachuted into the Soviet Union from an aeroplane. After all, this was less than a year since US pilot Gary Powers had been shot down in his U-2 spy plane. Major Gagarin orbited the Earth for 108 minutes, travelling at more than 17,000 miles per hour before landing. Not in the ocean, like the Americans' Mercury capsules, but on land 16 miles southwest of Engels, just 160 miles west of the planned landing site. Gagarin ejected from the capsule while still four miles up, 
and landed safely by parachute. When we walk in the sand of a Gagarin would recall being observed by a farmer and a daughter as he landed wearing his bright orange suit and large white helmet. He said, When they saw me in my spacesuit and the parachute dragging alongside as I walked, they started to back away in fear. I told them, Don't be afraid. I am a Soviet citizen like you who has descended from space and I must find a telephone to call Moscow. Gagarin's flight was announced after the event on Soviet radio. The flight was celebrated as a great triumph of Soviet science and technology, demonstrating the superiority of the socialist system over capitalism. There were huge celebrations across the country, as all America could do was look on knowing it had been defeated. Gagarin was awarded the title of Hero of the Soviet Union, the nation's highest honour but was banned from taking part in further missions as he was considered too valuable a propaganda asset by the Soviet state. The Americans were not going to let Gagarin's flight pass by without putting up a fight. Three weeks later, on May 5th, 1961, US Navy pilot Alan Shepard piloted the Mercury Redstone 3 mission and became the second person and the first American to travel into space. In a cruel twist, this flight had originally been planned for April 1960, a whole year earlier than Gagarin, but technical difficulties and delays had prevented it. He named his spacecraft Freedom 7, and unlike Gagarin's 108-minute orbital flight, Shepard blasted off for a 15-minute suborbital flight at an altitude of 116 miles. The Mercury capsule was three times smaller than the Russian Vostok, and Shepard would have some control over the flight, whereas Gagarin's was completely automated. Shepard's launch was seen live on television by millions, and following a successful splashdown in the Atlantic, when asked by reporters what was going through his mind as he sat atop the huge redstone rocket prior to launch, he replied, All I could think of was the fact that every part of this ship was built by the lowest bidder. Shepard, like Gagarin, was celebrated as a national hero honoured with ticker tape parades in Washington, New York and Los Angeles, and received the NASA Distinguished Service Medal from President Kennedy. Later, in a speech to the Joint Session of Congress broadcast live on TV and radio across the United States, Kennedy said, This is a historic milestone in our own exploration into space, but America still needs to work with the utmost speed and vigour in the further development of our space programme. He asked for an extra $1,700 million on the federal budget to spend on researching and developing ways of achieving the boldest mission yet. I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, to provide the funds which are needed to meet the following national goals. First, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. 
and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. We propose to accelerate the development of the appropriate lunar spacecraft. We propose to develop alternate liquid and solid fuel boosters, much larger than any now being developed, until certain which is superior. We propose additional funds for other engine development and for unmanned exploration, explorations which are particularly important for one purpose which this nation will never overlook, the survival of the man who first makes this daring flight. But in a very real sense, it will not be one man going to the moon. We make this judgment affirmatively, it will be an entire nation. For all of us must work to put him there. On July the 21st, the second flight of Project Mercury took off from Cape Canaveral. The pilot on board this time was Gus Grissom, who had named his ship the Liberty Bell 7. The suborbital flight lasted about 15 and a half minutes. After splashdown, emergency explosive bolts unexpectedly fired and blew the hatch off, causing water to flood into the spacecraft. Quickly exiting through the open hatch and into the ocean, Grissom was nearly drowned as water began filling his spacesuit. A recovery helicopter tried to lift and recover the spacecraft, but the flooding caused it to become too heavy, and it was ultimately cut loose before sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Still, the Americans were no closer to achieving a mission whereby one of their pilots would actually orbit the Earth. Whereas in August, a second Russian cosmonaut, German Titov, spent an entire day orbiting the Earth 17 times in just over 25 hours, further adding to the woes of the American space program as it became more apparent that the Russians were clearly winning this particular race. Well, for the time being, at least. At the Old Bailey in June this year, three men and two women appeared before the judge charged with plotting to pass official secrets to the Russians. All five pleaded not guilty to charges that they had conspired to break the Official Secrets Act. The five accused were Gordon Lonsdale, a 37-year-old company director from London, Henry Houghton and Ethel G, both civil servants, and two Canadians, Peter Kroger and his wife Helen. Charges related to the passing on of secrets of Britain's first nuclear submarine from the Navy's underwater welfare establishment at Portland, Dorset. Nice. 
The Attorney General said that Miss G and Mr Houghton, who both worked at Portland, were passing these secrets on to Lonsdale, who in turn would take the information to the Kroger's house for transmission to Moscow. The jury was informed Mr Houghton was being followed by police and was seen meeting Miss G and travelling up with her to London on several occasions where they met with Lonsdale. They were arrested in London after one of these meetings with Lonsdale. A shopping bag carried by one of the accused turned out to contain four Admiralty test pamphlets and a tin of undeveloped film which included details of Britain's first nuclear submarine, the HMS Dreadnought. Later that same day, police went to the home of the Krogers in Ryslip, where upon being told that she was to be arrested, Mrs Kroger asked if she could go and stoke the boiler. Obviously suspicious of such a request, the police officer there insisted on searching her handbag, and he found a white envelope inside which contained a letter written in Russian and a sheet of paper with tight black numbers in code. These were later found to be grid references to a map showing locations for meeting places. A further search of the house revealed a trap door in the kitchen which led to a small cellar. The bathroom had been adapted to double up as a photographic darkroom. Upstairs in the loft they found more cameras and photographic equipment, a 74-foot radio aerial and a high-powered wireless capable of transmitting to Moscow, as well as $6,000 in $20 bills. Upon searching the properties of the other defendants, police found thousands more in used notes hidden in paintings navigational charts and a plan of Admiralty property in Dorset. There were high-powered wireless sets, torches with hollow batteries and flasks with secret containers. In the press, the group were dubbed the Portland Spiring and the trial would go on for two weeks. The Krogers were actually Morris and Lona Cohen who were wanted in America in connection with the Rosenberg case. Notoriously, the Rosenbergs, both US citizens, had been executed back in 1953 for conspiracy to commit espionage for the Soviet Union. At the end of the trial, the Coens were given 20-year sentences and eventually exchanged with British spy Gerald Brooke in 1969. Lonsdale was identified as an illegal Russian, actually called Conan Melody, and was sentenced to 25 years. He served less than four and was released to the Russians in 1966 in exchange for Greville Wynne, an Englishman accused of spying in Russia. Houghton and G were each sentenced to 15 years in prison. They both served 10 years, changed their names and got married after their release. And on the 8th of May, George Blake, the former diplomat, also appeared at the Old Bailey. Blake had been captured by the Communists during the Korean War when he was a Russian vice-consul in Seoul. He had been held for three years and was brainwashed into spying for the Russians. The 38-year-old self-confessed spy passed every document he could lay his hands on to the Russians whilst he was working in Germany and the Lebanon. And after finally being discovered and charged under the Official Secrets Act, he was found guilty and received a record 42-year jail sentence. Nineteen sixty one, as in the previous year, proved to be a year of change and unrest in Africa. 
In January, the French voted with a clear majority to grant Algeria its independence. French President Charles de Gaulle had been elected back into office three years earlier on a mandate to prevent the war in Algeria spilling over into France. There was an atmosphere of high tension in Algeria as voting took place. Security was at its highest in the capital, Algiers, where an estimated 20,000 French troops are on patrol. In the event, however, the voting passed off relatively peacefully. There was, however, some violence. In one of the worst incidents, 10 Algerians and a French army corporal were killed in the south of the country, when officials said the rebel FLN staged a raid on a polling booth. But overall, the authorities expressed relief that it had not been worse. At the time, Algeria had the largest white settler population of any French African colony, with a million people of French descent holding power over 8 million Algerian Muslims. The Muslim population had little political or economic power and a few legal rights, and discontent reached such a level that half a million French soldiers were stationed in the country. The French settlers themselves reacted with outrage to this clearest indication yet that Algeria was heading towards independence. The former military commander in Algeria, General Raoul Salan, founded the Organisation de l'Armée Secrète, the OAS, an extremist organisation of French settlers determined to fight the independence movement. Led by Salan and a group of French army officers, it staged an unsuccessful coup in Algiers in April 1961 as well as carrying out several bomb attacks in mainland France and attempting to assassinate President de Gaulle on several occasions. In an official broadcast in February, the Katanga government in the Congo announced that former Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba had escaped from Kolate Prison Farm in the west of the breakaway province. They offered a reward of £2,000 for his recapture and a further £300 for his accomplices Morrison Polo, the Minister of Youth, and Joseph Akito, the former Vice President of the Senate. Three days later, officials in Katanga declared that Lumumba was dead. According to a statement by the Interior Minister, Mr Lumumba was killed by villagers trying to take him into custody. The United Nations had tried to intervene and claimed that the report was covering up the fact that Mr Lumumba, rumoured to have communist sympathies, had actually been shot. Authorities in Katanga have refused the United Nations access to visit Mr Lumumba earlier in the year, with President Chashombe stating that the disappearances were none of the United Nations' business. The UN Secretary-General himself had intervened in an effort to ensure a fair trial for Lumumba. Violent protests were mounted the next day as 6,000 foreign students and workers gathered outside the Belgian Embassy in Moscow over Mr Lumumba's death. The Soviet government demanded the immediate withdrawal of UN troops from Congo, the resignation of the Secretary-General and trials for President Tshumbi and General Mobutu. Within a week, it became apparent Patrice Lumumba and his ministers had actually been killed on the 18th of January, the day they were moved to Katanga two weeks earlier. Night. 
Argument and debate would continue for decades after, and it would not be until a Belgian government inquiry in 2001 reported that the murders would not have taken place had it not been for the involvement of Belgian and American intelligence services. Also in 1961, Sierra Leone would be the latest of the African nations to win its independence. Celebrations would take place in April in the shadow of a state of emergency following a campaign of sabotage by the opposition All People's Congress who are insisting that free elections be held. And later in the year, in November, relief efforts began in earnest as the RAF began airlifts to drop food supplies to flood victims in Somalia. Nearly all of Somalia's food crops were destroyed and the food was desperately required for about 600,000 people for eight months until the next harvest. Over 200 people drowned and about 230 villages were destroyed in the lower Juba province alone, with initial reports putting the number of homeless at 300,000 people. Outbreaks of malaria, dysentery, rheumatic fever and influenza were reported in a number of places, combined with the real danger of a typhoid epidemic. The worst of the flooding was caused when the two main rivers, the Shabel and the Juba, broke their banks and merged in a vast floodplain 12 kilometres wide. The torrent of water submerged vast tracts of land, tore out communications, marooned towns and villages, destroyed homes and livestock, and ruined banana plantations. Throughout the country, roads and airstrips are underwater, making the task of moving food and medical supplies almost impossible. The main story this year from the world of sport was Tottenham Hotspur becoming the first team in the 20th century to achieve the prize league and FA Cup double. Just a rubber ball cause you think you can be true to Earlier this year Spurs captain Danny Blanchflower also created a little piece of television history by refusing to appear on This Is Your Life, the first person to do so since the programme began in 1955. Like in 1961, Wimbledon staged its first all-British singles final since 1914, and it was won by Angela Mortimer, then 29, 
over Christine Truman in an emotional match ranging over three sets. It was a huge triumph for Mortimer, who was challenging at Wimbledon for the 11th time and followed her victories in the French Championships in 1953 and the Australian in 1958. 115th Grand National at Aintree was won by 28-1 shot Nicolaus Silva, the first grade to win for 90 years. Last year's winner Merriman II finished second, with the favourite John Joe coming in in seventh place. There was a shock result in this year's derby at Epsom. Sidium, a 66-1 outsider in a field of 28, managed to streak past most of the other horses in the final straight, having been way back in the order for most of the race, eventually winning by two lengths. Oxford won the boat race, beating Cambridge by four and a quarter lengths, despite one of their rowers slumping and nearly falling out of the boat. And in the World Series, the New York Yankees took on the Cincinnati Reds. In an era where news events were dominated by the Cold War, political gags about the Reds being pitted against the Yanks were bound to be commonplace. Although the Yankees won in five games, earning their 19th championship in 39 seasons, attention was mainly focused on Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle, who were desperately pursuing Babe Ruth's 60 home run season in 1927. Mantle finished on 54, while Maris managed to set the record of 61 on the last day. Cricket, the 1961 Ashes season, proved to be a turning point in the fortunes of the Australian team. Just months after their exhilarating victory over the West Indies in the famous Tide Test Series of 60-61, the Aussies, led by Captain Richie Benno, drew the final test at the Oval to win the coveted trophy. Despite the supreme fast bowling skills of Fred Truman, England were unable to defeat the Australian team, which confirmed a supremacy over England that would last throughout the remainder of the decade. And at Royal Birkdale, Arnold Palmer won the first of two consecutive Open Championships, one stroke ahead of Di Reese, becoming the first American to win the coveted Claret Jug since Ben Hogan in 1953. Since 1853, Betty in the UK had been limited to on-course facilities, with telephone betting for account holders being permitted a little later. Illegal betting shops were commonplace if you knew where to look and who to ask for, and bookies would frequently use runners to collect bets from pubs, clubs and workplaces, with protection money being paid to bank coppers and gangsters. Following on from the new Betting and Gaming Act introduced the previous year, betting shops became legal in May 1961, with bookies now having to pay tax on their earnings. Within months, a staggering 100 shops were being opened per week, with 10,000 being set up by the end of the year, and a thousand casinos opening their doors by 
1961 was the year that the CND, or Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, truly began up in its game with regard to protests. In February, 4,000 protesters sat down outside the Ministry of Defence in Whitehall, and a further 1,300 were arrested in Trafalgar Square in September. Following the arrival of the first nuclear submarines armed with Polaris missiles at Holy Lock in Scotland, 350 more found themselves behind bars. In 1961, West Berlin would become a focus of worry and embarrassment for the Soviet Union. Nearly 2,000 refugees were fleeing to the West through West Berlin on a daily basis following their belief that capitalism was a far better way of life than that of the communists, many of which were also valued and skilled workers. West Berlin had also become a centre for US espionage. At the Vienna summit in June 61, therefore, Khrushchev demanded that the US leave West Berlin within six months. Kennedy refused and instead guaranteed West Berlin's freedom. On August the 13th, the residents of Berlin woke up to find that their city had been divided in two. Barbed wire fences up to six foot high had been put up during the night by troops sealing off the escape route for thousands of refugees from the east. Road traffic across the border was stopped, as well as train services across the two sectors of the city. Angry demonstrators gathered in their thousands on the western side of the division, only to be driven back by armed guards as they attempted to trample down the barbed wire. West German Chancellor Konrad Adenauer appealed for calm in a broadcast to the nation that evening. There was outrage from the international community at the sudden decision to isolate one side of the city from the other. He was standing there. In London, the Foreign Office declared that the restrictions were contrary to the four power states of Berlin and therefore illegal. The, the American Secretary of State, Dean Russ, called it a flagrant violation of East West agreements and said there would be a vigorous protest to Russia.
a hundred pounds of clay. And then he said, Hey, listen. Over the preceding weeks, the Soviet Union had taken an increasingly hard line over detaching itself from the three Allied powers and formed a separate peace treaty with East Germany over Berlin. This led to a massive rise in the number of people fleeing East Germany at the rate of over 10,000 per week. Prior to the erection of the fences, border guards had begun to intercept trains near to Berlin, and after interrogating the passengers, approximately only one in ten were being allowed through. Only the day before, the East German government had met and approved new unspecified measures against the refugees, leading to a desperate exodus of 3,000 East Germans escaping to the West in just 24 hours. And in the days and weeks that followed, construction of a concrete wall began, complete with sentry towers and minefields. The Berlin Wall succeeded in completely sealing off the two sections of the city. By the time it was completed, the Berlin Wall was 96 miles long, and the average height of the concrete wall was 11.8 feet. In the years that followed, the Berlin Wall became a physical representation of the Cold War. The blatant division between Communist East Berlin and the Democratic West served as the subject for numerous commentaries and speeches in the United States the Soviet bloc considered the wall necessary protection against the undignified and decadent influences of the depraved Western culture and capitalism. Over the course of the wall's existence, 133 people were confirmed killed trying to cross into West Berlin, according to official sources, while a victims group puts the number at over 200 dead. There were also some 5,000 successful escapes into West Berlin before the borders were reopened in 1961 will pay host to some notable debuts this year. Mr. Ed, Car 54 Where Are You, Top Cat, as well as Songs of Praise and Points of View both still being screened today. Jerry Anderson will present Supercar, a supermarionation precursor to shows such as Captain Scarlet and Thunderbirds, and Western series such as Gunsmoke, Wagon Train and Bonanza will prove to be popular. This year would also see the debut of The Avengers, starring Patrick McNee. This first series would not, however, co-star glamorous female actresses such as Anna Blackman, Linda Thorson or Diana Rigg, but Ian Hendry as Dr David Keel. Today, 
Telling every woman in town Of the love that he just found And Marie's the name Of his latest fame Elvis Presley's domination of the UK and US charts would continue throughout 1961. But before his authority on the music buying public would be challenged by a certain group of lads from Liverpool the following year, the British charts were being invaded by a 14-year-old girl. Helen Shapiro hit the number three spot with her first single, Don't Treat Me Like a Child. This was swiftly followed by two number ones, You Don't Know and Walking Back to Happiness, making her the youngest female chart topper in the UK, a record that still stands to this day. So please don't treat me like a child. Musically, the charts reflected an eclectic variety of tastes this year, with the Drifters, Bobby V and the Everly Brothers doing battle against British stars such as Matt Munro, Frankie Vaughan and Shirley Bassey. And jazz was very popular this year, with the charts being propped up by acts such as Acker Bilk, Kenny Ball and the Temperance Seven. And in the USA, Motown Records had their first million selling single, Shop Around by the Miracles. Written 
written by Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson, it reached number one on the Billboard R&B chart and was the first Motown record to be released in the UK on Decca Records' London label. In February, the Postmaster General announced plans to build a 507-foot GPO tower in central London. This eventually increased in height to 603 feet. In Belgium, a US skating team were among the 73 killed when a Sabina Boeing 707 crashed near Brussels. And the BBC announced that Children's Hour, which had been on the air since 1922, was to be dropped in April. And I'd walk out the door. In March, in London, Edwin Bush became Britain's first suspected criminal to be identified by means of an identikit picture. South Africa announced it would leave the Commonwealth on becoming a republic in May. In Nice, Pablo Picasso, aged 79, married his 37-year-old model Jacqueline Roch. And 145 people were reported killed when a dam burst in Kiev. April would see the start of the Adolf Eichmann trial in Jerusalem where on the 21st he would admit to playing a part in liquidating German Jews. The United Nations voted unanimously to censure South Africa for its racist policies, and President Kennedy announced the formation of the Peace Corps, as well as stepping up its presence in Laos with military and financial aid for the fight against the communist movement there. And on April 17th, 1,400 counter-revolutionaries consisting of exiled Cubans, backed up by American support from the CNR, attempted to overthrow the country's leader, Fidel Castro. The main landing point of the Bay of Pigs was a beach surrounded by a mosquito-infested swamp. And the only way to get further into the island was along just three heavily defended roads. The Cuban exiles that had been based in the United States organised the attempt to overthrow the Castro regime counted thousands of Cubans as part of the rebel forces. However, the level of support for the invasion from within Cuba never happened. The fighting lasted just three days. The invasion force was badly outnumbered, and the mass defection of Cubans they had hoped for, their only realistic hope of success, never materialised. More than 100 of the invasion force died in the attack, and nearly 1,200 were taken prisoner. 
Dean Rust, the US Secretary of State, initially denied any US involvement in the invasion, stating that the United States had not and would not intervene in Cuba with armed forces or otherwise. But there were genuine suspicions that the US had had a hand in it as three of Cuba's military air bases had been bombed two days earlier. But again, the US denied all knowledge of the bombings, saying Cuban Air Force pilots defecting to Florida were responsible. Reporters who had watched one of the planes land in Miami after carrying out the attack described features which indicated it was American-made. Shortly after the failed invasion, Castro proclaimed Cuba a socialist nation, abolished elections and ejected all foreign Roman Catholic priests. And in the days that followed, thousands of anti-Castro rebels were confined in makeshift prisons and at least 600 were executed. Cuban Secret Service, G2, worked around the clock, rooting out and interrogating possible counter-revolutionaries. The Bay of Pigs incident managed to strengthen Castro's grip on Cuba. More importantly, he was supported wholeheartedly by the Soviet Union, who are now firmly on his side and it would lead to events 18 months later that would bring the world closer than it had ever been to the brink of all-out nuclear war. In 1961 would also again prove to be a troubled time with civil unrest in the United States. In May, martial law was imposed in Montgomery, Alabama following violent clashes between blacks and whites. 
Dr. Martin Luther King was present at the Negro First Baptist Church in the town, giving an address to the congregation on the 21st, when a crowd of white men, women and children began throwing stones through the windows. This was just the latest in a long line of vicious occurrences which had hounded a group known as the Freedom Riders. The Freedom Riders were a group of civil rights activists in mixed racial groups who rode interstate buses into the segregated southern United States throughout 1961 and subsequent years, challenging the local laws and customs that enforced segregation in seating. In response to the attack in Montgomery, Attorney General Robert Kennedy ordered 300 federal marshals armed with tear gas to disperse the angry crowd. This was backed up by local police officers who baton-charged their way through the mob which eventually dispersed. In his speech to the congregation, Dr. King called for a massive drive to end segregation in Alabama. He said the state had established the most inhuman form of oppression and it was time for it to end. Dr. King had returned to Montgomery to rally his supporters after being told of an attack the previous night when they arrived at the Greyhound bus depot in the town. As the riders disembarked from the bus, they were set upon by a group of whites armed with baseball bats and iron pipes. The local police stood and watched as the beatings went on uninterrupted. During the disturbance, Justice Department official John Siegenthaler was beaten unconscious when he attempted to help two of the Freedom Riders. This resulted in federal marshals being called in to break the whole thing up with the police only taking part once the worst of the violence was over. The Montgomery Troubles were just one of many violent incidents which had seen buses firebombed and drivers thrown in jail. Governor of Alabama, John Patterson, reluctantly imposed martial law and threatened to arrest any marshal who tried to intervene in local law enforcement. Robert Kennedy replied to this by saying that he had sent in the marshals because the governor had failed to assure him that he would be able to maintain law and order otherwise. Four days later, after the clashes outside the Baptist church, the Freedom Riders were given armed protection as they marched into the whites-only waiting room in Montgomery and bought tickets to take them to Jackson, Mississippi. They were allowed to continue their journey through the Deep South, escorted by the Alabama National Guard and Highway Patrol officers. But on arrival in Jackson, they were arrested and jailed for 60 days. More Freedom Riders travelled south to keep up the pressure, and by the end of the summer, about 300 had been arrested. Eventually, on the 1st of November 1961, their dreams were realised when the Interstate Commerce Commission, at the request of Robert Kennedy, finally issued regulations that prohibited segregated travel on the buses. You can't mean that. Don't you come back. Oh, now, baby, please. Don't you come back. What you trying to do to me? 
could never be a portrait of my love for nobody could paint a dream you will never see a portrait of my love for miracles I'll never see Anyone who sees her Soon forgets the Mona Lisa It would take, I know A Michelangelo And he would need The glow of dawn that paints the sky above to try and paint a portrait of my love. June 1961 would see the enthronement of the 100th Archbishop of Canterbury. Uproar as a pack of ten cigarettes go up halfpenny to one and nine, and this was swiftly followed in July by a mini-budget which would see petrol rise by threepence a gallon and a further fourpence on a packet of 20 cigarettes. It would take, I know, a Michelangelo And he would need the glow of dawn That paints the sky above to try and paint a portrait of my On the 16th of June, at an airport in Paris, Rudolf Nureyev, the principal dancer of the Kirov Ballet, made his escape from under the eyes of Russian security and requested asylum in France. Nureyev was touring Europe with the Kirov, and his behaviour had previously brought him under close scrutiny from the KGB. There were concerns during the tour that he was not abiding to some of the rules laid out for the company, and was even actively disobeying some of them. Instead of returning obediently to the hotel each night in the coaches provided, Nureyev would go out with the French dancers and other locals. One or two of the other Kirov dancers did likewise, but Nureyev was the one who caused most alarm to the political agents running the tour. There were concerns that he'd become close to and possibly even fall in love with the daughter of a wealthy and Chilean painter in Paris, 21-year-old Clara Saint. Nureyev's relationship with Miss Saint and other members of Paris society had caused concern to the Russian authorities, and whilst he was at Le Bourget Airport with the rest of the Kirov company, he was approached by two Russian guards. They informed him that he was required to return to Moscow rather than board the plane with the others who were on their way to London to perform at Covent Garden. 
And so, rather than waiting to board the waiting Russian plane, Nureyev broke free, ran towards the French police officers shouting, I want to be free. The officers took him into an office at the airport where a heated argument broke out between all concerned. But Nureyev was immediately granted temporary asylum in France with his case being referred to the Office for the Protection of Refugees and Stateless Persons. Within a week, Nureyev was signed up by a major ballet company in Paris and went on to become one of the greatest dancers the world has ever known. He never returned to Russia and spent the rest of his life in the West becoming director of the Paris Opera Ballet and starring in several movies. Every morning at the mine you could see him arrive He stood six foot six and weighed 245 Kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip And everybody knew you didn't give no lip to Big John Big John, Big John Big Bad John, Big John Nobody seemed to know where John called home. He just drifted into town and stayed all alone. He didn't say much. He kind of quiet and shy. And if you spoke at all, you just said hi to Big John. Somebody said he came from New Orleans where he got in a fight over a Cajun queen and a crashing blow from a huge right hand sent a Louisiana fella to the promised land. Big John. Big John. Big Bad John Big John Then came the day at the bottom of the mine When a timber cracked and men started crying Manners were praying and hearts beat fast And everybody thought that they'd breathe their last Except John Through the dust and the smoke of this man-made hell Walked a giant of a man that the miners knew well Grabbed a sagging timber and gave out with a groan And like a giant oak tree just stood there alone Big John Big John Big John Big Bad John Big John with all of his strength he gave a mighty shove then a miner yelled out there's a light up above and 20 men no history series focusing on the 1960s would be complete without mentioning the Vietnam War the Vietnam War was the longest deployment of US forces in hostile action in the history of the American Republic but when did the war actually begin although there is no formal declaration of war from which we can date US entry President Kennedy's decision to send over 2,000 military advisers to South Vietnam in 1961 marked the beginning of 12 years of American military combat. 400 Green Berets were sent into South Vietnam's Central Highlands to train Montagnard tribesmen in counterinsurgency tactics. The level of aid to South Vietnam was tripled, and a steady stream of aeroplanes, helicopters and armoured personnel carriers and other equipment gradually poured into the South. Big Bad John Big John Now I go cleaning windows To earn an honest bob For a nosy parker It's an interesting job 
Now it's a job that just suits me A window cleaner you would be If you can see what I can see When I'm cleaning windows on the 6th of March, after suffering a heart attack, music hall giant George Formby passed away at the age of 56. Lancashire-born Formby was one of the UK's best-paid stars during his heyday in the 30s and 40s. For six successive years during the 40s, he would top a popularity poll compiled by British cinema-goers who would flock to see him in films such as Spare a Copper and George in Civvy Street. His stage persona was that of a lovable fool with risque songs accompanied by his ukulele. But he was a shrewd professional who amassed a fortune, earning up to £35,000 per film, a massive amount for the time. Formby would, however, turn down many more lucrative offers, and when Hollywood beckoned, he refused, choosing to entertain the British and American troops during the Second World War. Pajamas lying side by side, ladies' nighties I have spied. I've often seen what goes inside when I'm cleaning windows. This year we also bid farewell to the authors James Thurber and Dashiell Hammett as well as two kings, in the shape of King Zog of Albania and King Mohammed of Morocco. There was also Sir Thomas Beecham, Carl Jung and the artist Augustus John. Turn my whole world upside down Farewell to love I'm off to join us And in May, after a valiant battle against cancer, Hollywood legend Gary Cooper passed away just one week after his 60th birthday. Cooper had been close friends with the author Ernest Hemingway, who took his own life not two months later. Notable movies of 1961 included The Guns of Navarone, El Cid, and the final picture from both Marilyn Monroe and Clark Gable, John Huston's The Misfits. And worldwide acclaim for continental movies would increase this year with the successful and popular releases of La Dolce Vita and the French New Wave classic Abu de Soufflé. 
At the 33rd Academy Awards presented in April, which would honour the movies from 1960, the Best Actor and Actress statues would be presented to Burt Lancaster for Elmer Gantry and Elizabeth Taylor for Butterfield 8. Supporting actor and actress were Peter Usinoff for Spartacus and Shirley Jones for her performance in Elmer Gantry. Billy Wilder would take home the award for Best Director for The Apartment, which would also go on to receive the award for Best Picture. And in October, Paramount Pictures would release a romantic comedy directed by Blake Edwards, written by George Axelrod, and loosely based on a Truman Capote novella. With George Peppard and a career-defining role for Audrey Hepburn, who would create one of the most iconic movie characters not only of the 60s, but of all time. Next time, why don't you join me as I tell the story of the making of Breakfast at Tiffany's. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley podcast and take a look at the website rainbowvalley.org or send us your thoughts and feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Paws production. Mm-hmm.